our childhood was, you know, in the cattle depression and so we're very simple life, um, but we all worked hard. So, you know, no one slept in, everyone got up early and we were always, you know, out mustering in the frost and then we'd all be peeling all our jumpers off and throwing them onto, onto the fences. And mum would have a beautiful chocolate cake ready and we'd sit onto this lovely bottle tree with the green lawn and, you know, all take our boots off and, and sit on the lawn and have cake and tea. And it was just amazing. Hello, welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling the stories of regional and rural women from across Australia. I'm Emma Herbert, your host for this episode. Resilience is a word that is bandied about, and the experts are still unsure how it forms. After speaking to women on the land week in, week out, I have the sense that robustness is forged from walking through the fire, living through the mess, picking yourself up, dusting yourself off, and putting one foot in front of the other. Just like every other muscle, it seems emotional sturdiness is made stronger through use. Today, we're yarning with Yolandi Woods, mother, beef producer, designer, private pilot, and I know she won't love me saying this, but also warrior. Yolandi's life story weaves and turns like the McIntyre River she and husband Bruce have built their home on in Gundawindi, on the border of Queensland and New South Wales. Like any river, her life has had pockets of extraordinary change. Floods, droughts and rapids accidents, divorce and breast cancer. Yet Yolandi doesn't see it as unique or any different to anyone else. Raised in the outback, her bush roots hold strong, seemingly no matter what rushes her way. Aptitude seems her strength and if she's not training for a marathon during radiation treatment, she's learning to fly, fixing fences, working as an interior designer, raising cattle or starting a new business. I just, I love being busy. I just, I'm I'm not good when I'm idle. So uh, basically at the moment, um, my life looks like dropping my youngest son off to school and then I head out to the farm and check our cattle. I might be cleaning troughs and fixing fences. And then I come back to my office where I will be sourcing fabrics for clients, um, organising, you know, um, curtains to be made for a client or sourcing um, furniture. And then Aeroheart, my new company that I've, um, it's my baby. And so it's a premium range of products for, avi- uh, for aviators. Uh, and so I'll be sitting in the office and I also do the books for my parents' company and have done that forever. So Yes, and then it'd be school pickup time and then uh, or my husband might need me to fly him somewhere and might fly up to Emerald. Yes, so it's very busy, a bit crazy. <laughs> I don't really know where to start with all of those different titles, but Aeroheart, you know, is very much at the front of your brain because you're trying to launch this business in yeah. uh, during a pandemic with all of the lockdowns yeah. and things like that. So tell me a little bit about Aeroheart. What are you trying to achieve and and how is that going in 2021? Um, so basically my father has been flying since he was 16 and I've always with our families always had an aircraft and so we've you know I've grown up you know getting from A to B or off to a bull sale or you know from one property to the other um, in with dad 
and I've always loved flying and I got married quite young and I didn't really get the opportunity to fly. My brother's got the opportunity, but I think as a female on the land, it's kind of the, you get sort of pushed back a little bit. And um, so I learnt quite late and absolutely it's part of me I'm it's something that I probably should have done when I was much younger and I would be in a probably in the aviation space commercial pilot I'm not sure but I absolutely love it and so thankful to have the opportunity from dad dad actually gave me his aircraft because he started flying helicopters and so he never really used a fixed wing and he said look if you want to learn to fly you can have the plane and so I actually learned in our 182 and it's just been such an amazing milestone for me and I've learned so much. And anyway, so while I was flying, I noticed that there's a huge gap in the market because there's so many females now coming through. It's, it's an industry that, you know, females are on a level playing field with men. And I guess I've noticed that because living on the land in, you know, in the bush, I don't have the physical um, ability that a man does when I'm, you know, have to lift a cow up or do something in the yards. Uh, whereas flying, I feel like we're on a level playing field. And uh, I noticed that most of our pilot products that we need to use every day are black and clunky and unrefined, designed by men, you know, for men. And so I thought, you know, I guess from my design background, I realised I could do better. I could, you know, have beautiful products. I've got a, such a gorgeous plane and, you know, my friends have really amazing aircraft. And why do we have to settle for products that aren't functional? And the aviation space has moved quite quickly. Uh, back in the day, you would have a kneeboard on your leg and that would be for, you know, manual maps and handwriting your notes, which you still need to handwrite notes. But now it's all moved into, um, you know, iPads. Um, so all our maps and data is all in front of us on an iPad, but you still don't have anywhere to write your notes. So you'd be lifting your iPad up and writing something underneath and it wasn't functional and it, it was quite, you know, you just weren't organised in the cockpit. So I engaged this incredible company clandestine design group which is an industrial design um, company in brisbane and i said i've got this idea and they were amazing they pulled everything out of my head and put it onto paper and we've designed a suite of products now together and yes we would love to launch this year but with um timing it's just everything's slower everything takes you know two months longer than what it normally would. So getting prototypes back um, and refining the products and things like that. So, yeah, it's exciting. And, um, yeah, I, I can't wait to I, – I think it'll be products that not only women will love but men, you know, will love as well. And the fact that it is really functional just excites me. And I, I can see there's so much more scope for these products outside of the aviation industry as well. So, I think that love of design very much permeates every aspect of your life. Um, you've been known to, you know, turn up to work in the cattle yards and you'll be wearing beautiful silver bangles and, you know, a crisp white shirt. Is this love of <laughs> is this love of design? Where did this come from? And and do you think you've always had it? Yes. I think growing up, my father, you know, my parents bought 
cattle properties and we're expanding and dad always bought a property with the worst home on it the just dilapidated run down and mum and I always joke that oh, of course he likes this property because it's got the worst <laughs> home on it <laughs> he won't buy something with a nice home um, so spent my childhood you know growing up with mum judging the house but within you know within their own means I mean if your mum and dad had property two hours north of Charleville and you know you don't just you can't just pop down to the tile shop or so everything was done practically but beautifully and so mum's always had a love of fabrics and colour and yes I've been exposed to that my whole life and I really don't know any other way to live and I guess it's expressed in my garden as well. I, we have a four-acre garden here, which I just we've built from scratch and absolutely love it as much as my home. And um, when we built our home, we designed it that it brings the outside in. So our home is, you know, from every angle, the garden is part of the home. And, yeah, so I'm really lucky that mum was really clever at um, doing, doing up homes you know, practically, but beautifully. Yeah. I think that your life, you've really shown that you don't have to choose a career early and stick with it. You've, you know, been able to add to your repertoire along the way. How old were you when you started your interior design business and where did that come from? Um, so, well, right back, uh, my mum and father, they had the opportunity to live at Dolby on the Downs, uh, on the Darling Downs, and they dad was sort of commuting and mum ended up buying a gift shop in Dolby Sesame's which was this gorgeous gift shop and she went in with two friends and so I was exposed to sort of that retail quite young and we were at you know I was in grade one at Dolby State School for a little while and then ended up going back and doing correspondence um, but then when I was 18 um, I was on the road like um, had cattle on the road so we, I was driving for mum and dad and I'd sort of put the cattle out in the morning, feed them and then put them back in. And then mum bought a gift shop, the gift shop back for me. So I was 18 and thrown in the deep end and ran this gift shop, which I absolutely loved and grew as a person because living where we were at Eidsvold, we were quite isolated. And even though I'd been to boarding school, I was still very shy and it was lovely to evolve into that space and be exposed to gift fairs and things in Sydney. And, um, and then, and then I got married and um, sold that shop. Uh, and then, oh gosh, fast forward, it would have been about five years ago. I just happened to be asked to help somebody with their home. They needed to renovate a bathroom and an upstairs area. I didn't really have a business as such. I'd already studied um, interior decorating, and but it's one of those things you can't teach. I just have it in me. And when I was approached, I thought, oh, well, actually, I really enjoy this. I love it. And so from there, I started Yolandi Group and, and really sort of got my ABN and, you know, started a business. So, uh, and I just, I love it. It's it's one of those things you just can't say no someone asks you to help them and you probably don't have time but you go okay <laughs> and every I think it's the relationships too I really enjoy that connection with people in their home and getting them to love their home again and you know and seeing it through fresh eyes and and just walking through with somebody and saying well why don't you just move that there and move that here 
and they're going, we just didn't think of that. And so it's nice then and then you get a comment back from them and say, we've just, we've fallen in love with our home all over again. And I think I have a, a knack of knowing how to live in a space. I've got four beautiful children, you know, from 20 down to seven. So I think I know how to live in a space and I think that helps. As someone who's going through a renovation at the moment, which is, I think, probably 25% fun and 75% horrifying, (laughs) I would love to just ask, you know, what are some very easy ways to spruce up a space and um, perhaps cost effective, but what would your top tips be for that? Um, Sure. So uh, like one particular country home I went into had a lot of pine, you know, door frames and I suggested why don't we just put white gloss on the you know pine door frames and instantly the home just changed it just brought it forward um so I think decluttering is a big thing I love I'm a, I'm a things person I love things around me and I love lots of stuff but there's stuff and then there's clutter um so I think a, a quick declutter of a room step back and does the room feel functional? You know, when you're sitting down, say, in a lounge room, are you all able to converse, you know, maybe move some furniture around so you can chat better and and it feels like it works better? And then obviously beautiful lamps, you know, turn all the lights out, put some beautiful big lamps on, you know, beside a couch, makes such a difference. I even have a a beautiful lamp, um, in my kitchen on my kitchen bench and it just elevated my kitchen straight away it felt homely and soft soft lighting um yeah I think don't hide things you know bring things out of the cupboard you know I know you've got a little small child and I've always you know always had all my good china out I never put anything away and yes it's you get the odd thing that gets broken but why not enjoy your beautiful things so um don't know I think just yeah a nice rug you know if you've got floors that aren't fabulous you can always put a natural coir mat down that just brings it you know that natural products back in and feels real and tangible so yeah texture oh I love those they're so they're such practical tips I'm going to rush out and implement them straight away But uh, you just touched briefly before on your childhood and I'd love to rewind and and go back and and, uh, chat a little bit about that. It sounds really interesting that your family were moving a lot. So whereabouts were you moving around and and what was your childhood like? Um, I had a fabulous childhood. I was so lucky. We had such a simple life. Um, So we were uh, 45K southwest of Eidsvold in the South Burnet and mum and dad had a very undeveloped property that they we sat back and watched dad you know using a tripod with a block and tackle which no one would even know what that is today and so it's an endless chain and he would use that to lift things and build beautiful sets of you know timber yards and fencing you know I think the property only had a couple of fences on it and dad you know, it was all manual, but it was so rewarding to see how he created this beautiful, you know, beautiful property. And so our childhood was, you know, in the cattle depression. And so we're very simple life, um, but we all worked hard. So, you know, no one slept in, everyone got up early and we were always, 
you know, out mustering in the frost and then we'd all be peeling all our jumpers off and throwing them onto, onto the fences. Um, branding was always, you know, left for the holidays for the, you know, for us. And then in the afternoon, we'd come home from work and mum would have a beautiful chocolate cake ready and we'd sit onto this lovely bottle tree with the green lawn and, you know, all take our boots off and, and sit on the lawn and have cake and tea. And it was just amazing. I mean, it was just such a beautiful way to raise a family. Mm-hmm. And a mum was such a homemaker. So, you know, mum was sort of more at home and dad would be out in the paddock. But then you'd have times where we'd have fires. And so when we were doing correspondence when we were young, mum would throw all our books in the ute and off we'd go and be fighting fires for the day. And, you know, so we, it was just all about living on the land. And, but it was, it was a great life. And so then from there, mum and dad then expanded and um, bought a property at Charleville. Um, and then they bought a property out at Long, west of Longreach. Um, and so, and then they had country at the Downs at Dolby. And they ended up with country at Drillham on, you know, which is a beautiful farm and, and feedlot. And they expanded up north to Pentland. So they've kind of, you know, everywhere and which is why the plane was always handy. Um, it was amazing just watching dad. And I guess that creativity is also on the land. It's not just in your home, you know, and I, um, we've been very lucky that mum and dad have helped us with a, a block here in North Agundawindi. And we're in that space where we've just acquired a block next door that's completely undeveloped. And we're just absolutely loving, you know, creating something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that creativity doesn't stop. Mm. It's so true. And I think that um, that gra- that uh, appreciation of graft is definitely steeped deep in your DNA. You're a, a really hard worker and uh, you, you said that you got married quite young and uh, were very involved. You were very involved in the farming life with your former mm. husband. Can you yes. tell me a little bit about um, how things really changed one day for you with your son's accident? Um, so, yes, I was married quite young um, and we lived at Brigalow and then we moved down to Gundawindi to a cotton irrigation property west of uh, Gundawindi. And uh, so I'd already had Samuel and um, my oldest and he was born in 2001 and George was born in 2003. 2006, he, oh, Ebony was born as well, sorry. And uh, one day... Um, Harvey couldn't use this backpacker because, you know, the, the irrigation had stopped or, you know, wasn't going that day. And um, so he brought this backpacker home and also brought uh, a potty calf home for me to feed. And we were, um, sorry. <laughs> and so then um, George, oh, wait, I had, the, I said to Harvey, we'll put the backpacker on the mower. That's fine. Cause I always mow my own lawn. I, I do everything myself. I, you know, do all my cleaning, all my ironing, all my, I don't outsource for anything, never have, and probably never will. Um, and so this particular day she hopped on the mower and um, next thing, Samuel, who would have only been five and he came running around the corner and said, quick, mommy, Georgie's dead. Um, and so I was actually on the phone at the time to my father-in-law because I used to do the books for their company and um, I dropped the phone and ran out and, yes, she had run over George um, with the rider mower and, look, it was an accident but it was life-changing. 
Um, so basically he um, was, we drove him to Gundawindi and he was flown out to Brisbane, but had lost his calf muscle and his Achilles tendon and his heel. And um, and how old yeah, was George he, at that time? He was, he hadn't quite turned three. Mm-hmm. So he actually turned three when he was in hospital. So 13 surgeries over three weeks and, you know, they ran out of saline water in the martyr trying to wash all the um, grass clippings out of his leg, trying to make sure that they could save the leg so there wasn't an infection. Um, There was talk of amputation at first and I was dead against it. Um, And, you know, we were just so lucky that he's, you know, that he survived it. He'd lost a lot of blood, which we didn't realise. his yeah it it was it was devastating um but such amazing surgeons at the martyr hospital that cared for him and helped him and he's now you know turning 18 tomorrow and he's incredible he's still got his leg and and he's had a few surgeries uh since but he's just I always called him my little soldier he's just amazing so but he was young and, and he's, you know, the doctors did explain to us that you don't have a, um, an at- emotional attachment to your limbs. So he will grow with it. And we're just so fortunate that his foot has continued to grow at the same rate as his other foot. So you wouldn't really notice a difference if you saw him with jeans on. So, yeah, wow. he's amazing. Yeah. Uh, uh, something like that, it's just such a, a shock and something that you would never expect and, mm. and I think accidents like that put place such a strain on marriages in particular. Did you find that at the time? Definitely. Look, I guess it didn't help having, you know, that separation time where I was down in Brisbane trying to get George, you know, to recover. And um, my husband was out here at Gundawindi and, and there was just a, we were just always on a different page. And I think... Yeah, it, it, one of the nurses had actually said um, to someone, to someone in our family, you know, don't worry about George. All the doctors are looking after him. He's just fine. Watch those two. This, you know, they'd obviously seen it before. And um, not long after George had had his accident, um, one of their employees had um, had died on one of their properties. And then not long after that, my dad crashed his helicopter. So it was just knock after knock. Um, And then George had to have more surgery. So then George was in Marta Children's. My dad was over in Marta, you know, adults hospital. My mum and I were just running from backwards and forwards, feeding them because we feel, I think that's how we got George through so many surgeries is just, you know, cooking home cooked meals at home and at at the apartment that we had and, and, taking them to him and keeping him healthy and um so yes it was um it was a quite a quite a a tumultuous time and yes unfortunately um when we did finally come home and and yeah so things ended um sadly and but that's you know after 12 years of marriage and three beautiful children it's I guess it's just a part of life Mm. Mm. And I think I often think of uh, Esther Perel, I think it was, who has an amazing TED Talk, and she says that people look at marriages when they end and think it's a failure rather than looking at the success of what you've created at that time. And I think 
that was so evident with with what you had both created these beautiful children and George was well and healthy uh, after such a, a huge challenge your your dad's accident how did that occur um so dad when they bought the cattle stations in north queensland at uh, pentland and um, collinsville dad thought this is ridiculous i need to get a helicopter so he'd never flown a helicopter before and he purchased a helicopter from sydney the instructor flew up with the chopper he put through an entire muster and by the end of the muster he had his license and he's just incredible you know to be able to do that at such an older age um so the, the helicopter was just part of his, it was his work ute. He would land it right at the back door of the kitchen and, and it was just his his work vehicle basically. And a lot of stations in, you know, Australia just wouldn't be where they are today without helicopters. So they're amazing machines. Um, on that day, Dad, Mum piled all the food into Dad. She was actually meant to go with him, but she gave him this big casserole and the country life and, um, and said, look, I'll, I'll drive over later. So he was going from one station to the next. Um, the staff had already gone off in the truck earlier that day. And so when at about lunchtime the staff rang mum and said, oh, um, is Jock bringing lunch over? You know, our, we haven't seen him yet. And mum said, oh, he left hours ago. So then it was a mad scramble of, um, you know, ringing around. And for some reason mum had a CASA number um, because a, a aircraft must have been missing in the area recently and she rang CASA to see if there would be an emergency beacon had gone off and so sometimes the big aircrafts overhead can pick up that emergency beacon um, which they did and so my mum's brother actually lived next door and he sent up his pilot um, to do um, an orbit over and they um, and did pick up dad's signal but couldn't find him so they it was coming to dark um, so they ended up sending vehicles out to search for him and um, one of the neighbours' wives just saw something out of the corner of her eye and, and it was dad. And so they found him. In a um, huge area, like the, the chances area. of finding it, him is slim. Really slim. I mean, these choppers, when they crash, they're, they're just a dirty little mess on the ground. They're, they're really, they just disintegrate. And, and how big are the properties up there? Like what, what sort of size are we talking um, about? So sort of 400, 500,000 acres. Wow. So, yes, you know, and when they found Dad, um, he had found this little tree and had must have slammed up against it, which is where Mum would have been sitting. So it was a blessing that Mum wasn't with him because then he was able to sort of break his fall. Anyway, when he they found, finally found him, um, he was sort of shutting down and so search and rescue came out and they took him to Townsville and his body shut down again when he got to the airport. Um, and all the while, all the information is just, you know, feeding back to all of us. And it was, I ended up chartering a plane to go straight up to Townsville from Gundawindi to be there. And look, it was unbelievable that he survived. He, I think, basically broke every bone in his body and had head injuries. Um, so it took 12 months for him to recover fully. And then he went flying again so he went straight back into the chopper he he always said that he was happy to get back in the chopper and and fly because he knew the accident wasn't his fault the plane had been serviced not long before he'd crashed and mum said he'd gone out in the morning to check a paddock and when he came back he got his manual and was reading 
And mum said, you know, he never reads manuals. Like no men read manuals. <laughs> and mum's like, what are you doing? And he said, oh, nothing. So something must have been wrong. He doesn't remember, obviously, but something just must have been amiss. And, um, yeah, he's extremely lucky. And, but, you know, so he said he was quite happy to get back in another helicopter and fly again. And, yeah, he's amazing. So they've actually retired now. They've sold their um, properties up north. I actually got my licence thinking that I could, you know, uh, Dad could do the mustering in the morning. I could fly up. It's four hours from Gundawindi in, um, flying the fixed wing rather than driving 12 hours. And I thought that way I could help Dad, you know, do the drafting and, and stay the night and then fly home again. Um, and then when they sold the place, I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> now where am I going to fly to? <laughs> Um, but anyway, it's, so they've moved to just outside of Toowoomba to a beautiful farm. And, and again, the house is not great. <laughs> so mum's been madly renovating and it is a beautiful, it's, it's now a beautiful home. It's a very old homestead and she's, you know, thrown herself into that and I've been helping. So, which has been yeah lovely to see it all transform. And yeah, mum and dad seem to be very good at that. Turning have- something in, nothing into something. After seeing your dad go through an experience like that, why? What still prompted you to get your license? Because how old oh, were I you at that time? My, I wanted to get a helicopter license, but Dad said you've got four kids; you can't afford a helicopter big enough to take your family. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, "Fixed wing is it? Fixed wing it is." Okay. <laughs> and the one eight two is just an absolutely beautiful aircraft it's kind of like the land cruiser of the of the aviation space so it's very practical and can land basically anywhere and you can load it up it's it is a lovely plane um but no i've i've just always have loved flying and it just has opened up my world and you know even just the people in that space you know like when i was learning everyone's so supportive there's so many pilots that you can just ring and say hey i'm i'm there's a bit of weather or do you think this is okay? You can ask them a question and they're just only too happy to help you. It's, it's a really nice, yeah, it's a nice group. Mm. Pilots are special. <laughs> well, you were studying to get your pilot's licence during, again, a very tumultuous time. So just before you got your licence, what happened for you? So I started back when I was sort of um, 31. I, you know, wanted to get my helicopter, uh, wanted to get my uh, plane license. So I started learning in Toowoomba. And, and you had just I, been through your separation and you had your three yes, kids and you correct. were kind of working. Yep. So, I was, so I was helping mum and dad with their property at Drillham, west of Miles. And there's, there, there was a 2,500 head feedlot and, and you know, uh, 5,000 acres of farming country and, and cattle country. So I did have a staff member there and I was um, up there sort of helping mum and dad run that on the week that so I'd, Harvey and I would sort of have a week about with our children. So the week that I didn't have my children, I would be back up at the farm helping uh, the family company. And so um, I thought, well, an aircraft, you know, flying backwards and forwards would be so handy. If anything went wrong, I can quickly get there and be accessible uh, I was on a spray rig talking to my agronomist and I said, oh, you know, don't think this is too weird, but I'm, you know, have this lump. I'm just feeling this lump in my breast. And it was just like a little pea-sized lump and it just, 
it was worrying me. And so I went to my GP here in Gundawindi, who I just adore. And she said, oh, look, don't worry. It's just a cyst. It's, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. Because you're 31, uh, you're healthy. I'm 31, I'm healthy, healthy, fit. You know, it, um, it could just be hormones. Don't worry about it. That didn't sit well with me. I think women need to, you know, be really bold and say, no, that's not right. That's not how I'm feeling in my gut. And I kept going back. So I went back the third time and she said, look, go and have an ultrasound. That will, you know, put you at ease. Had the ultrasound straight away. It was iffy um, and then suggested that I go and have a biopsy in Toowoomba. And by that stage, I had breast cancer and the cancer had already spread into the tissue. So it had already left its cell. Uh, so here I was, you know, turning 32 and rushing off to Brisbane and having a lumpectomy. Um, when they did the lumpectomy, they then took my lymph glands and my breast had actually drained to my lymph glands under my arm as well as across my chest. So then I had to go back under surgery to get lymph gland biopsy taken from under my arm as well as in my chest. And I'm so lucky it was not in my lymph glands. I'm, I'm just so, I'm, I feel sometimes a bit guilty that um, when I, with my breast cancer journey, that I was just so lucky. It, it was simple, you know, so had the lumpectomy, had to then go off and see oncologists, you know, dragging my three little kids along. And the oncolo one, one oncologist said to me, you do realise this is a disease. It kind of hadn't hit me. I've just felt, oh, it's okay. Lump's gone, you know, have some radiation and we'll just deal with it and it's done. Uh, that was kind of a bit of a wake-up call when he said that. Um, and so when I went to one of the oncologists, they said, yes, you should have chemo. I thought, oh, no, that's pretty severe. Went to another oncologist and they said, um, no, you shouldn't have chemo and went to the third oncologist and they said, we just don't know. You're too young. We don't have enough data to know the benefits of you having chemo. Um, and so my parents were actually with me at that doctor appointment and the doctor said, what do you, uh, my dad said, what do you mean you don't know? And he goes, well, look, she's just so young and, and we just, we literally don't know. So I decided myself just to do six weeks of radiation. And uh, that's when I thought, oh, what am I going to do with six weeks of my time in, you know, Toowoomba? And, you know, I drove up and back from Gundawindi every day to get the radiation. I thought, oh, what am I going to do? I know I'll get my pilot's license. <laughs> so, and I'll run a marathon. So I ended what? up, <laughs> I know my oncologist is like, what? So I would go up and I'd get, zapped at the at St Andrews and then I would go across to the airport and I would study and then I would go for a fly <laughs> and then I'd get back in my car I'd come home pick up the kids from school uh, it was quite manic and then you know mornings I'd be running and ended up running in the hell of the west which is um, you know 20 kilometer run in a team and yes all the while doing radiation but you know it was I'm, I was just so lucky. I was young and fit and healthy and just, you know, the radiation didn't affect me. Yes, I got burnt badly on my skin, but, you know, I didn't have the side effects that a lot of older ladies had. And when you go in to have your radiation, when they're setting you up, they actually tattoo you so that you get zapped in the same spot precisely every time. And 
I was laying there on the bed and just thinking, I'm so glad this is not my mother. I would just loathe her laying there with no top on and getting that done. It was, it's quite confronting and mm. sorry. No, absolutely. And I'm just, you know, so that's why I've always got this sort of guilt that I just got through it. You know, I just, and I think having been through everything with George and his accident, I just drew strength that what he went with so mammoth compared to what I was going through. So it just, yeah, I just got on with it and just got it done. And now I'm, you know, 12 years and perfectly fine. So I'm just, yeah, very lucky. Oh, yeah, Andy, it's such a, a huge thing to confront your own mortality and I think a very lonely experience. What were some of the things that you learnt from from that time and, and from such a challenging five years from 2006 with George's accident and, and your own um, treatment for cancer? Um, yes, it was a lonely journey uh, and I particularly being young, getting breast cancer nowadays you know there's quite a few unfortunately sadly there's quite a few girls getting it in our district and you know younger mums but they're more in their 40s and it's you know we probably talk about it more now whereas back when I got mine it wasn't on anyone's radar like in my friendship group it wasn't really something that people sort of go Oh, you know, it wasn't in their headspace. You know, everyone was busy getting married or having babies. You know, it wasn't. Whereas now, I think we're more aware and want to go and get checked, and we all encourage each other more. So, yes, it was lonely, um, but I was so busy. You know, I was helping mum and dad with their property, and and I, I just, I'm, I'm just a worker, I guess. I just get on and get things done, and tried not to think about it. I think it's some of the lonely trips back from Toowoomba. So it's two and a half hours um, up to Toowoomba and two, two and a half back. So sometimes those drives back, you'd be thinking about yourself and, you, and you'd start to sort of get teary and you go, no, 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 stop, stop thinking about yourself. And, you know, it'll all be okay. It's just a bump in the road. And after everything that we'd sort of been through and what dad had been through as well. Uh, and then I, you know, started triathlons and met Bruce, my amazing husband. And so I had something to look forward to finally after, you know, all the treatment and, um, yeah, so I actually feel really lucky. Yeah, it's amazing. And meeting, so you met Bruce through triathlons. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, so Bruce um, and his family have been here forever in Gundawindi. They're very much part of the fabric. And we were west of Gundawindi, so I always knew him socially, but not really that well and um, we just happened to be away at a triathlon one weekend at the coast and yeah it was like oh okay you're cute <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because when mum and dad had properties out at north of Charleville between Charleville and Tambo um, his family had country out there as well at the time and he said you know we probably crossed paths at the Morven Roadhouse which is just so funny you know that we probably have crossed paths quite a few times. Um, timing, it's about timing. It really is. And so, yeah, look, we've just been absolutely so lucky and we've built a beautiful, loving home and garden and, and you know, so Bruce's work is here in town. Um, they have uh, grain and stock feed and logistics, so they're, and plus their grain farm. They're extremely, 
you know, clever family, just amazing. And Bruce and I now on the side have our property, which, you know, that's sort of my, I run it daily, like the daily operation falls on me. And then weekends, you know, we get to share that together and we love watching it evolve and, and can't wait to expand even more and just very driven. We're both very, very similar. We have bits of peas in a pod, so... We love our garden, we love our home and love the family to be, you know, to feel like they've got somewhere to come home to and to nest. So, yeah. And you welcomed a son together as well who's a little bit younger than your your other kids. <laughs> How has that gone with Walter joining the family? Um, so it was always a risk falling pregnant, um, but Bruce was so amazing with my three children. I couldn't deny him he'd never had children never been married and so I didn't want to deny him that special you know bond that you have with your own child and so spoke to my surgeon and he said look you know my breast cancer was estrogen and progesterone positive so the chance of me getting cancer again you know when I'm pregnant was a possibility but I could also get hit by a bus so it was a no-brainer for me to gift him that. Um, and so Walter's about nine years younger than Ebony, my last. Um, so, yes, he's seven and he's grade two and he's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and But he's beautiful and, and um, it's just lovely seeing Bruce with him. Uh, but definitely no more. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> done. I've done my bit for Australia. <laughs> And I love that when we were organising this chat, you said, oh, um, yeah, absolutely, but I can't do tomorrow because I'm flying one child to boarding school and I can't do the next day because I'm flying the next. You know, how fabulous <laughs> to be able to fly your children to, to boarding school. How is that? What's that experience like? Yeah, well, that's it's only like I haven't done it a lot. And I was like, why haven't I done this? I flew Ebony back um, on Monday. She goes to St Margaret's in Brisbane and it was so lovely, just the two of us, you know, flying off and, and it only took us an hour because we had, a you know, a, a tailwind. And so she thought it was fantastic. And then when I had to fly home, I hit this hit. I felt like I was going backwards. It was so slow. And I, I, it took me twice the time it did to get down there. So anyway, it, it's lovely. And even um, Bruce's family have a, a depot in Emerald and I just absolutely love being able to fly him up there when he needs to be there quickly. So instead of seven hours driving, it's two hours in the aircraft and beef week, you know, we piled all the plane up. Samuel, my oldest, who's 20 and six foot four, he's <laughs> so tall. He was sort of sprawled across the back seat of the 182 and there's bags all around him and off we went to beef week and it was fantastic. So it is, I, I love, yeah, being able to have that um that skill and and it is it's it's amazing it's a nice feeling to do that with your family aviation is very in your blood as well there's been some historical moments with women in your family isn't there yes so my auntie uh she they she lived up at pentland and she was the very first female helicopter pilot in australia and or the youngest female pilot to get her license uh so which is just extraordinary and she's so incredible with what she did with her life and she ended up running a station over in the Kimberleys and unfortunately um, in that period of George having his accident and dad having his chopper crash and 
Uh, my grandfather had passed away and then I got cancer and then my auntie actually um, crashed her helicopter and didn't survive. Um, but she was so iconic and just a gorgeous woman and, you know, loved that she always had a beautiful big Paspaheli pearl, you know, and she'd be out in the cattle yards running this enormous station at Fitzroy Crossing and flying this helicopter and doing all the mustering. And now her daughter, I think her, I think Amelia got her licence when she was in her very young 20s, early 20s, just as accomplished as her mother, just amazing, flying the choppers around, mastering. I take my hat off to them. It's a, it's a certain skill and not a lot of people can do it and not do it so well. Yeah, it's beautiful to watch. It really does strike me as this uh, pioneer spirit, this real grit and I think resilience is bandied around so much but definitely emotional sturdiness where do you think that comes from oh look I I mean when I look when I read back on stories of my family you know whether it's on my father's side or my mother's side you know what some of those pioneering women went through with their younger families you know is just we've got nothing to complain about. We have everything at our fingertips. I mean, we've got it so easy. Um, my great-great-grandparents um, took up a property at Kilcoy in a beautiful farm and, um, you know, just reading the stories of, you know, her husband was gored by, you know, by a steer and she has to stitch him up out in the paddock and, you know, all the while they've got kids and just we are so fortunate we're in a, an amazing time of our life we're very very lucky and I know this whole pandemic and everything's put everything on a standstill but really truly we are very lucky so I, I think I just have always looked at those women and and just drawn strength from them and and always want to be better and I don't want to I never I try not to complain about anything and yeah I'm try to be the best that I can be and, and try to show that my children that, you know, as a female, you can do just as much as what a man can do. You just have to do it differently. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess, is coming through with, with Aero Heart and hopefully will be launched. So what sort of products will you be, um, I guess, or what have you designed? So um, headsets were the initial um, uh, sort of aha moment, I guess, where I thought, oh, I can make something better than this. We're such an Instagrammable world. You know, my black headsets don't look very nice on me. (laughs) I thought I need to do better than that. Um, So I have, you know, have created this beautiful kneeboard that's very innovative but absolutely stunning and it's all wrapped in dark green kangaroo leather and it's really beautiful and refined and, and but really functional. And I absolutely love flying with my prototype and, it just keeps me organised and I can't wait to share it with the world. Um, and so, yes, I, I just feel Aeroheart does have that beautiful heartbeat and, and is a very um, a deep-rooted, it's, all, it's part of me, I guess. It, it's, it's me out in the world. Um, I, it's, I do love that heritage and it's, yeah, it, it's, it's going to be beautiful. But so the suite of products will just all evolve, you know, pilot bags and, and things like that. But, you know, lots of ideas of, of going from there. In all but of that just... spare time that you have. 
<laughs> no, and I've actually just been um, accepted into an amazing uh, Evolve program um, with S uh, SBE. And so it's all about sort of learning um, how to launch the, the company and, and how to be more proud of, you know, being a female founder. And so I'm really enjoying that um, at the moment. And it's a lot of Zoom meetings, but it's fantastic. And I'm not very articulate. And so it's actually helping me, you know, get my message across better. And mm. I love learning and I love growing. And this isn't the end. There's so much more ahead. Well, I wouldn't agree with the non-articulate part. I think you're extremely articulate. And I think there's this real, uh, I think there's a, a changing narrative and a real conversation around women in the bush and their talents coming out in different aspects with different businesses and um, whether that's interiors or uh, soft furnishings or design designing products or services that they're able to provide from the country and I, I love that you're really spearheading and a part of this this wave so thank you so yeah. much Yolanda it's <laughs> been so lovely to chat with you oh thank you Emily I've just absolutely loved it I yeah hope it's not too boring <laughs> are you actually kidding me <laughs> such a big life I think that's that's just that imposter syndrome I think it's so real in you know for females and uh, yeah I guess you always just feel like you're not quite good enough and not quite educated well not educated and you know but I feel like I've got lots of life skills and now I'm pouring light energy into you know what I'm doing now so yeah. and how do you think you banish imposter syndrome I don't think you ever do do you I think you just push it down and try to fake it till you make it <laughs> speak a bit louder than that little voice <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> I feel like there could be a part two of Yolandi's life story. There's just so much juiciness to delve into. Classically, when I first contacted Yolandi to see if she'd come on the podcast, she was unsure. She said she didn't see how her life story compared to some of the other women interviewed for Life on the Land. Just like it's hard to work on your business when you're in it, I think it's sometimes hard to see the lives we've lived when we're so close to them. I believe a story like Yolandi's is so compelling and needs sharing. This is the last episode of the season and we'll be having a break for two weeks before jumping in to season seven, the last of 2021. Isn't that bonkers? Christmas will be here before we know it. If you want to take all the sweat out of Prezi's this year, consider the gift of a Grazy Her magazine subscription. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean so much if you could share it with a friend. And if you have a mini-mo, jump on the platform you're listening with and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you so much for listening. You are directly helping to give voice to women in the bush and we love you for it. Until next time, keep well. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company. <laughs>